<laughs> Today we are facing some of the greatest challenges of our lives, from our health to political unrest, the environment, financial uncertainty, and the nation's racial divide. Welcome to Bill Myers Inspires. My idea for this show was to invite guests and get the conversation started, to take a deep dive into the issues that impact our world with an eye to exploring solutions. And we encourage our listeners to look within themselves to take decisive action to make a positive difference. Welcome to Bill Myers Inspires. I'm your host, Bill Myers, and we are continuing our series that we started on January 1 with Richard Brendan on healing and hope. And my guest today uh, is, uh, her story is every bit healing and hope story. And I met her probably about a year ago and at uh, Witherspoon Presbyterian Church in Indianapolis, Indiana, where she spoke and I picked up a copy of her book as a result of that talk that she gave. It was, oh, um, well, I, I won't I won't do a spoiler on it, but I will show you the book just in case. The book is entitled Consider It Pure Joy. It is a fantastic read and a fantastic story. My guest today is author and attorney and activist, Jennifer Jones Austin. So I want to ask a few questions to set this up. How do you define the word joy? What do you associate with joy? Jennifer Joan Austin's story is both inspiring and compelling. When stricken with a deadly illness and battling for her life, she discovered that her life and purpose was much bigger than she ever dreamed. Let me tell you a little bit about Jennifer and her background. Jennifer Jones Austin, a fourth-generation leader of faith and social justice, child and family advocate, thought leader, public speaker, and nonprofit chief executive officer. Jennifer Jones Austin, Esquire, fights for equity. Uh, as CEO of the FPWA, she leads poverty-fighting policy and advocacy efforts to strengthen and empower the disenfranchised and marginalized communities. Jennifer is a sought-after speaker who appears regularly on television and radio and at community events, faith gatherings, and professional convenings. She guest hosts the nationally syndicated radio program, Keeping It Real with Reverend Al Sharpton and the cable program Brooklyn Savvy. Jennifer was born and raised in New York City, and I am just so very thrilled to have her here today. She was with us earlier when we talked about racism and the social services, uh, the government social services, and she provided quite a bit of information to let us know that systemic racism is alive and well in America. So at this time, I would like to introduce to you Jennifer Jones Austin. Jennifer, welcome, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you, thank you for having me, uh, Bill. It, you know, when I when I received your invitation, I um I just filled up with I filled up with joy, the opportunity to uh, share my story, and especially in a moment in a time in in the in our individual lives, in the lives uh, you know of our like collectively speaking the nation where. There's just a lot that we're all grappling with. 
Yeah. Uh, we need to center on healing and on hope and, and try to find some joy even in the midst of challenging times. So I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And I'm glad that you're able to tap right into the healing and hope because we need that. There's a lot of hurt in in our nation in our world at this time not only the pandemic but you know the divisiveness and the racism and you know it, it, there's a lot to deal with here and so i think that it's appropriate that we start this year with optimism at the very least and healing and hope is is the right way to go so jennifer i am going to now turn this over to you and so you can sort of start this journey that you're going to lead us through Absolutely. So I'm going to begin by sharing that um, it was uh, uh, 11 years ago that I entered the new year uh, mm. with, uh, with what some would say is good reason to not be hopeful. Uh, I entered the new year January 2010, uh, having suffered uh, my first bout with leukemia and uh, having to face the prospect of perhaps not surviving another bout with leukemia and um, having to, uh, and, and knowing that if the leukemia returned, uh, it would return quickly and with a vengeance and that it might, might very well be the case that I would not see 2011. So I know a little something about entering the new year and not everything being um, all bells and whistles. And, you know, we hear people often talk about, you know, this year, this new year is going to be my year. You know, it's going to be right. filled with prosperity and it's, you know, everything is going to like be exactly as I want it to be. I'm going to get that job. I'm going to get that car. I'm going to find new love. I'm going to, you know, find reinvigorated love with someone that I, you know, that, that I want to be with, whatever it may be. Sure. So we begin the year, you know, very often feeling like we are 100% in control. Right. And in this moment, I think it's important to appreciate that that's not always how the new year begins. And so right. I entered 2021 remembering that it was in 2010 that I was facing the very real possibility of having a relapse with leukemia and not making it through the year. Give you a little bit of background. Okay. Uh, it was in September of 2009 that um, I, um, I learned I was sick. And it was kind of a crazy, you know, way that it all went down. I woke up on a Friday morning mm -hmm. with a flu-like fever. And um, I thought it was just that. I pressed on through the day, took some uh, Tylenol to, uh, you know, uh, to, to, to bring the fever down and it just kept spiking. And then, uh, you know, tried to sleep it off at night and kept waking up drenched in sweat, in my own sweat, uh, because it was my body sweating, trying to bring the fever down, trying to you know, take care of itself. And then by that Saturday morning, uh, after having been admonished repeatedly by my husband and my, by my mother, uh, I went to the hospital, to the ER, sat in the ER for hours and ultimately was triaged and was told that I had a virus. The doctors in the ER told me to take some Advil and go home and sleep it off. They said it would be about, you know, 48 to 72 hours before I began feeling better. Mm -hmm. uh, so I should just go home and sleep it off. Well, here's what happened. The doctor said I should. That's what I did. And um, Sunday came. There was really no change in my condition. Monday came. Still no change. 
until that afternoon, Monday afternoon, when after awakening from sleep, you know, a, a nap in the middle of the day because I was fighting this flu or this virus, mm-hmm. I woke up and I could not see. Everything was white. I literally could not see. That's when I realized this is not your ordinary flu-like fever. It's not your run-of-the-mill virus. Something greater is wrong. Something more significant is the problem. And so I called my physician, my primary physician, and she told me to come on in. And when I got to her, she took one look at me and said, you're in bad shape. You need to go right away to the hospital via ambulance. And I got to the, uh, to the hospital and they began performing a battery of tests. They admitted me. And by that Wednesday, I learned I had leukemia. I had wow. acute myeloid leukemia. And um, the doctors told me that uh, most people who get leukemia undergo chemotherapy. They're inconvenienced for about six weeks. And then they get back to living the life that they've known, the lives they've known. And so I thought, you know, this wasn't on my agenda, but, you know, six weeks, that's not a lot of time. Sure. And I'll just press on and I'll be fine. That was Wednesday. By that Friday, I am, I'm, what I'm about to tell you, I only know because I've been told. I was comatose. The doctors put me into a coma and they intubated me. They put a tube down my throat. What was happening was that the leukemia, which is a blood cancer, had had actually begun moving through my body and it entered my lungs and my lungs shut down. I could no longer breathe on my own. The doctors intubated me to help me to breathe. They put me in a coma because my body was still heating up. They put me in a bed of ice and they told my husband that I was going to die. They told my husband that I had a 99% chance of death and that I would likely die that weekend. They didn't think that chemo would work. They conferred with the number one specialist in the city and she said, well, just go on and try. And she prescribed a cocktail of chemotherapy. They administered it and lo and behold, it worked. That's why I'm still here. And I will tell you as a person of great faith that there was a whole lot of praying going on as well. And so I believe, you know, very strongly in the Bible's teachings that faith without works is dead. And I think that there was a lot of praying coupled with the doctors going to work. And I survived that weekend, um, only to learn when I came out of my coma that uh, the doctors that believed that because of the type of cancer that I had, the rarity of the acute myeloid leukemia, I, I, um, I, I suffered a broken chromosome. I had a defunct blood and bone marrow system. And the only way that I would survive long-term was if I had a bone marrow transplant. And so we went through a period of time, several weeks, um, getting us through the holidays and then to January, beginning of a new year, where I was in great search, desperate search for a bone marrow donor, uh, for a bone marrow transplant to cure me of the disease. Wow. So, so let, me, let me back up just a second, because now we're into the new year. So when exactly did these symptoms an- initially start? Because this seems like it was a pretty compressed period of time where the floor just fell out. I love that. The bottom, the floor fell out, the bottom fell out. I literally, I remember the Thursday before the fever hit, not feeling quite right. 
but just thinking maybe I'm getting sick. You know, mm-hmm. it's the end of September and I'm one of those people who has long been susceptible to change of season, um, yeah, you know, uh, colds. You know, you move from the fall to the winter, the winter to the spring, the spring to the summer, the summer to the fall, and on comes a cold. Right. right? Sure. And so I was used to that. And that's what I believed what was happening. Mm. But it was something more severe. And so, um, you know, from feeling sick to first feeling just a tinge of sickness and then waking up with a fever on that Friday morning, uh, by the very next week, I, 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 my husband was being told that I was going to die that weekend. My goodness. My goodness. Incredible. Incredible. You know, um, we just don't know what life has in store for us. Um, and I'm just reminded of it's not so much what happens it's what you do with what happens and how we respond uh, in, in moments like that. And there are many people, of course, you know, suffering right now, of course, during the uh, with COVID and and are, are being leveled. Uh, yes. You know, and so, you know, I continue to pray for them. I, you know, I was just, I was having a conversation with the pastor, uh, Winterborne Harrison Jones, Dr. Winterborne Harrison Jones <laughs> over <laughs> at Witherspoon Presbyterian Church in Indianapolis. And, you know, uh, I had shared with him that um, my reluctance uh, to get onto Facebook mm-hmm. right now because I find myself spending 30, 40 minutes just clicking the heart button and saying my condolences and my deepest sympathy. And I am praying for you over and over and, Mm -hmm. and to the point where I just have to log out. I've got to walk away because I have been consumed with that activity for six months Mm -hmm. and it's just, a, a constant reminder, and there's only so much you can walk through before you need to kind of catch your breath and um, and recharge the battery just to log in once again and, and do the same thing over and over. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I found very early on during the COVID um, pandemic was, you know, I, I was feeling that weight as well, mm-hmm. especially, you know, I, I'm here in New York City. And as and you so and, am I now, right? I love it. I love it. <laughs> I just moved to New York. No. <laughs> I see the Empire State Building. I love it. Um, but you know, like being here in New York City, we were very early on, like kind of the epicenter uh, yeah. for the for the pandemic here in this country. We, you know, we we took the the greatest hit initially, and um, and 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 being a person of color, uh, and having many friends. Uh, who are of color and friends who um, come from all walks of life, mm-hmm. I, um, I too found myself on Facebook just, you know, scrolling. And it was like every time I, every time I moved on to the next page, there was another person who'd passed away oh, or yeah. a, a family member who was gravely ill and all tied to COVID. And, and it was a lot, but here's the interesting thing. What I began to realize was my journey with cancer was giving me a perspective to try to help support others dealing in this very uncertain moment. The fact that when I had cancer and then when I ultimately received the transplant 
which, um, you know, anybody interested in, you know, in reading the book where I can say a little bit more about it was like, I mean, I was, my family and I were on this, um, this like kind of like amazing race journey to try to secure a transplant before a transplant donor before the disease returned. And um, it was just like the doctors say it was an epic journey. That's actually why I wrote the book, but, um, and, and part of it, I mean, well, the reason I wrote the book was to help people appreciate that when you're going through something that is so challenging, you know, is, is, is in many ways seems catastrophic and is catastrophic. Your whole life is turned upside down. Right. You know, like what you said earlier, Bill, how you approach it, how you embrace it has everything to do with how you get through and how you come out of it. So yeah. I began to realize when I was on Facebook, uh, Instagram and other places and spaces, that I had a, I had a perspective that could very well help people in Absolutely. this moment of greatest challenge and struggle, trying to center um, as loved ones were being lost or were succumbing to illness or as people were facing the illness themselves or the uncertainty with respect to job loss or their children now not being in school and just all of the trauma, right. all of the drama and the trauma. My experience of having to fight for my life and not knowing whether I would live and, and literally walking the streets of New York City, wearing a mask when nobody else had to, fearful that I might contract something that would take me out because my immune system was compromised. Right, right. I had perspective Right, sure. That could help others to get through. Yeah. And so I actually then started going on to Facebook all the more because I realized that that, that I had something to give. You know, that's incredible. And that, you know, we you know, this this story, there are so many elements to your story in this journey. And you're right, um, you were absolutely being uh prepared for a moment such as this to to offer something to others, uh, some hope and, and uh, that sort of thing. We're going to take a break right now, and we'll be back in just a minute. You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires. We're doing our series on healing and hope with my guest, Jennifer Jones Austin, and we'll be right back in just one moment. Today, we are facing some of the greatest challenges of our lives, from our health to political unrest, the environment, financial uncertainty, and the nation's racial divide. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Bill Myers Inspires as he and his guests take a deep dive into the issues that impact our world with an eye to exploring solutions. Emmy Award-winning actor Bill Myers is an accomplished actor, jazz musician, filmmaker, writer, educator, and speaker. As a biracial man who's both black and white, Bill leverages his background, talent, and voice through creativity, compassion, and connection as activism for social justice to focus on uniting the divide and compelling change. Bill Myers Inspires encourages listeners to look within themselves and take decisive action to make a positive difference. For more information, visit his website, BillMyersInspires.com, and sign in for the latest news and updates. Are you a subject matter expert? 
Are you here to share your expertise with an audience waiting to hear from you in only the way you can deliver? Are you ready to have your voice amplified across the airwaves? Inspired Choices Network has a global radio platform streaming to millions of people across the world. Professionally produced and supported by an accomplished team every step of the way, you can broadcast from anywhere in the world knowing your voice matters and we ensure it is delivered with ease and efficiency. Eager to hear your message, the world awaits. Contact us today to become an Inspired Choices Network radio host. Email becomeahost at inspiredchoicesnetwork.com. You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires here on the Inspired Choices Network. We're here every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you for joining us. And now, let's get back to the conversation. We're back. You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires, and we're doing our series on healing and hope with my guest today, Jennifer Jones Austin. And let me flash this book again because shameless promotion, but it ain't no shame in my game. This is an awesome book, and everybody needs to go out and get this thing. It's a wonderful journey. Consider it Pure Joy by Jennifer Jones Austin. Jennifer, there's a little detail here because you are an attorney and you had made mention that when you were in finishing up law school that you had your sights set on the big cushy corporate gig. <laughs> we're going to make millions and millions of dollars and, and represent Exxon or whoever. Now, um, but then something changed uh, and so I, I just want to backtrack because I think these are this is a critical little piece that is certainly uh, a part of your journey, and I think indeed, that it is uh, indeed, worth. Indeed. Yes, yes ma'am. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so, so one of the things that um, that that I um, I've come to appreciate is you really are um, you really are a product of your environment. Uh, I once had a therapist say to me that. Um, there are three types of people in the world, uh, and especially when it comes to um, trying to trying to deal with an issue or a situation. Mm-hmm. He said the, the first kind or first type of people are those who deny that there's like, you know, a problem. Um, they're the second type of people are, though, because she said it's all about imprinting, like what you see in your household is what you become. First type of people, like if they bring a problem. Uh, from their home or whatever they say, um, nope, there's no problem here. You know, like, you know, like I'm, there's nothing wrong with me. She said the second type of people say, yeah, that is a problem. You know, that, that is a problem. That's me, but I'm not changing. And she said the third type of people are those who say, yes, there's a problem and I want to do something about it. And she said that it is the third person that you want to work, that you can definitely work with. The second person, you may have some leeway, but that first type, you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah, yeah. And and I bring that up because I realized that my imprinting is very, very much a part of who I am, uh, both in terms of um, how I move through the world and then how I deal with problems and I deal with situations. And I grew up in a household with parents who were more in that third category. And so that's kind of who I am. Well, you asked about the like, you know, the, the like, you know, like you, you, you brought up kind of the whole thing about you know, me thinking I was going to corporate into the corporate world. 
the imprinting in my life was such that I was taught to believe that you should live your passion. You should pursue, you know, whatever your calling in life is, whatever your purpose in life is. And that if you are not in pursuit of your purpose, you know, you may be doing good things, but you'll never feel like fulfilled. You'll yes. never feel whole. Yes. And so I went to law school, um, not necessarily wanting to be a lawyer, but when I was there, I was like, well, what do people do? They come out of law school and most often they try to make lots and lots of money. And that's what I'm going to try to do. And it was in the, uh, in my second year of law school that I learned about the experience of children who are abused and neglected and are, you know, severely and often permanently traumatized. And it was as though God was speaking to me mm. and saying, I brought this to your attention because I want you to go to work. I want you to work on behalf of my vulnerable children. And so I'll never forget in my second year of law school, um, feeling as though God was speaking to me. And at the time I was dating this guy uh, and um, we'd been dating for about three years and uh, we were talking about getting married. He was in business school, so he was going to be a business uh, businessman, and I was going to be, you know, a, a corporate lawyer. We were going to make oobs and oobs and oobs, gobs and gobs and gobs of money. And I'll never forget calling him up and telling him that I believe that God wanted me to help, you know, serve and, and protect, save his children, his vulnerable children, the ones who abused and neglected, the ones who whose parents do not have enough resources to put food on the table at night and to keep them safe and warm. Mm -hmm. I called him up and I told him, I didn't know what type of reaction I would get. And I'll never forget him saying to me, this guy is saying, um, well, then you need to do that. And I was like, oh, I'm glad he understands what I'm saying. And he said, um, you definitely need to do it. He said, because if you don't, you're going to be miserable. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is such a great guy. Like he sees <laughs> me, he hears me, he believes in me and he understands. And then when he went on, he said, um, you know, and um, if you're miserable, then I'm going to be miserable and I don't intend to live a miserable life. And that was, goodness, that was, I guess now 30, 31 years ago and I married him. So, so it all worked out, right? It all worked out. That's awesome. Um, so I went on and I began working in uh, child advocacy, working on behalf of vulnerable children, uh, working in child welfare, working with children whose parents, you know, for whatever reasons had um, physically, emotionally, mentally abused them or neglected them. Uh, very often I found that these were parents who themselves had been abused, neglected, parents who were struggling to make ends meet, um, had experienced sometimes issues with substance usage and um, just found themselves in a bad way. That opened up my mind, my heart to appreciate it, that I needed to work on behalf of vulnerable children and their families. And I have to tell you that it's been now, goodness, a career that spans about 30 years. Mm -hmm. And it's been all about uh, serving and protecting and, and uplifting the needs of the most vulnerable children and their families. And I've been blessed uh, to work at the city level, the state level, and at the national level doing this work. And I've been able to achieve some great wins on behalf of vulnerable children and their families. And um, as That's awesome. you know, because the book tells you, as God would have it, you know, there was a reason. I just, I'm just going to say, I'm so thankful 
that I listened to God 30 some odd years ago because there was there was purpose in him sending me to work on behalf of the vulnerable children. Right. That's awesome. Okay. So now, now that we got that, I, I, it's so important because uh, your commitment and where you, your passions lie have so much to do with this story. And so now where we were was you were in need of a bone marrow transplant. So I'm going to, let's, let's pick up from there because now I just wanted to make sure that we, 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 we hit this other little piece because it's so important because it's God, God definitely is all over this story. (laughs) So here's what happened. Um, I come out of the coma. I'm told I need a bone marrow transplant. I'm told that uh, the cancer is, uh, the cancer is at bay, if you will. But, um, you know, with a, they'll be able to keep it at bay with some consolidation chemotherapy treatments. But at a certain point in time, they're going to no longer be effective. Uh, because I had a broken chromosome, it rendered my blood and bone marrow system defective. And that meant that the cancer was likely going to come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did not have an immune system to fight it. They said I needed a new blood and bone marrow system. They told me that I needed a donor. They said, um, you need someone with similar genetic typing not blood typing, but similar genetic typing, same genes, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so um, they said, you know, like a brother or sister, you know, somebody like, you know, same mom, same dad. I have three uh, uh, brother and sisters, one brother, two sisters. We thought that one of them would be a perfect match because we have the same mom and the same dad. So they all were immediately, instantly tested. And when the results came back, we learned that they didn't match me. They actually matched each other, but they didn't match me, which was like crazy. It was insane. Like, how could that be? So we then began learning about the National Bone Marrow Registry. It's a registry that today has more than 9 million people in it. People who have at one point or another over the course of the last 20, 30 years have joined, have signed up to be a donor, a blood and bone marrow donor for someone in need of a transplant. And that registry stays active with those people. And should they have genetic typing that is similar to someone who's in need of a transplant, they are called up to see if they're willing to be a transplant donor for that person. It may not be the person that they joined for, but somebody else with similar typing. So the doctor said, we'll take a look at the registry and see if there's a a transplant donor in there for you. They combed that registry and they had a hard time finding just one match for me. Mm-hmm. It was hard to believe that, you know, with as many people as were in that registry, there wasn't a good match for me. How many, how many people were in that, that database? At that time, there were 8 million people. Wow. 8 million people. Well, here's what we found out. And this, um, this, is, a, this is something, you know, that may be of interest to you, given your racial background. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we found was that persons of African descent have a very hard time finding a bone marrow donor because you need someone with similar genetic typing. And because of the great diaspora that mm-hmm. began with slavery, uh, and, you know, and, and that continues today, and you know, it's a blessing in many respects with interracial coupling, uh-huh. it's very hard to find somebody with uh, who is of African descent whose genes like match, match up significantly with another person of African descent. Now, if you're from the continent, immediately from the continent of Africa, you've been on the continent of Africa for the last 
you know, like 400 years, your family, your ancestors, you don't have this issue. But if you're here in the, you know, if you are a person who, because of slavery and other, um, has a, a gene pool that now oh, yeah. is mixed with right, persons sure. of European descent, right? Uh, you know, um, or other, you are challenged. And so that's what happened in my case. My husband turned to the do doctors and said, well, why don't we conduct bone marrow drives? You may have heard about them before. They're drives that are held where uh, people are asked to consider being a donor for somebody in need of a transplant. Uh, you know, in, in the last several years, they've changed the, 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 the process for registering people, but it used to be that, you know, you would be approached and then they'd ask to swab your mouth to get some of your saliva, which would give you, uh, they, you know, they would then run that and they get a sense of your DNA and your, your genetic typing. And right. if it looked like you might match, you'd be called for some more tests. And if mm -hmm. those proved uh, to be the case where you were a match, then you would be asked to be a transplant donor for somebody in need of a transplant. And this is a transplant for leukemia, other blood cancers, and increasingly sickle cell anemia, which we know mainly affects persons of color, black persons. Mm -hmm. And so my husband said to the doctors, let's, let's conduct drives. And the doctors actually told him not to. They said, let's just focus on her living out her last days as peacefully as possible. Because they thought that maybe at best we'd have a drive that would bring 100, 200 people. Right. And if there were already 8 million people in the registry, then what the difference was 100, 200 gonna make? It'd be like a, you know, they call it a needle in the haystack. Right, sure. I don't know how old school that term is, right? I don't hear young people saying that anymore. I may be dating I do a whole show on the needle in the haystack. <laughs> All right. But you know, the good news is that he did not, he didn't respond to them uh, and say, yeah, in, in, in the manner that they, they were suggesting. He said, you know what? We're going to do some drives because we're not going to let her die without at least trying to find her a donor. Yeah. So he and my family and friends commenced drives across the nation. And what happened, Bill, was that literally in less than three months, they began in December. They went through December, January, uh, and they got through a part of February. So we're talking about, you know, it was less than like 13, 12 weeks. Mm -hmm. They had, through their efforts, more than 13,000 people joined the registry. 13,000. 13,000. Wow. Largest number of people ever added in one year by one family's efforts, and the largest number of uh, persons of color ever added in one year, more than 13,000 people. And the good news, considered pure joy, was that um, people who've been, all, who've been looking for donors, people of African descent and other who were looking for donors, mm -hmm. began learning that people who joined the registry to, to be a, a match for me were actually matches for them. And so people who'd long been in need of a donor began learning that they had the transplant donor they needed to be cured of leukemia or some other blood cancer or sickle cell anemia. Now, now just, just for clarity, the, the, the 13,000 people that participated in uh, this, this, bone marrow drive were were they just were were they just in new york city or how did that they were across the nation they were in the caribbean uh, we even had a drive in africa 
uh, you know, we, we, we went, we wow. went blow, we, you know, we went globe trotting, if you will. Um, oh, wow. A lot of attention was play, paid to uh, places where black persons congregate. So churches, uh, colleges, uh, HBCUs, mm-hmm. uh, sororities and fraternities, because we needed people of color to join. But we also had, um, you know, uh, Caucasians join. And we had persons who were not of African descent. We had Asians join. We had people of Hispanic uh, origins join. And so what was beautiful, what was beautiful in all this was that people of different races and ethnicities were learning that there were matches for them. And to date, we have better than 100 people who we know of uh, who received matches, life-saving cures, bone marrow transplants from people who joined the registry to be a match for me. And that's why I talk about joy. Wow. Because what we were seeing was that even though I was suffering and even though my life hung in the balance, there was purpose in my suffering. I had a seven-year-old and a 12-year-old at the time. They're now um, 18 and 23 respectively. And the gift, the joy that we were experiencing in them understanding and appreciating that even though I was suffering and I might not live, there was something good that was coming of my journey with cancer. Mm-hmm. And so that was, you know, like I didn't want to die. Sure. But it gave me a sense of comfort and joy. And it gave me a sense of, um, oh, how do I best say this? Um, peace that my children would know that we didn't give up without fighting. Mm-hmm. And that even if we fought and we didn't win, there was some value. There was there was something that was gained. Oh yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. And 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 the fact that that effort wound up uh, being a blessing to so many people who were just like yourself in need. So now, out of that, did did you come up with uh, um, the match for yourself? <laughs> So, so I, in the book, I write about how um, how I, I would pray to God and I would I would thank Him for what was happening, but then I'd also say, Lord, you know, I don't want to be a martyr. Like I don't have to go down like that. Right? Can we just get one match for me? And here's the beauty of it: um, I never got a bone marrow transplant. All of that effort, I never got a bone marrow transplant. And even today, my husband and I. We um, we've uh, I've served on board. I've served on the National Bone Marrow Registry's board. I've served on the board of the Ikla de Silva Foundation, which was the bone marrow recruitment organization mm-hmm. that helped us, you know, canvass the nation to find a donor. My husband presently serves as the chair of that board. Uh, I am a spokesperson and a big fundraiser for them. Uh, what happened was we never got that donor, but we did get something for me. Um, we got a very special gift for me. And um, I think it has everything to do with um, years before the Lord having spoken to me and saying, I want you to work, to save, to serve, to protect my vulnerable children. Okay. See, that's the cliffhanger. We, we got to <laughs> hold right there. We got to hold right there. So, so yeah, this is, I mean, it's truly amazing. I mean, this this has so much dimension, and it t- affects so many people that rallied around 
um, your husband's efforts and all the efforts that went internationally uh, all around the world to save Jennifer. I, I mean, there's something uh, incredible about the idea and that level of commitment. And um, in spite of uh, the doctor's um, uh, advice or advisement to not go mm-hmm. there. I, and, I, and I would imagine that's probably because they have experienced times where people put all their hopes in that right. effort and it just didn't, you know what I mean? So they're, so that quality of life thing, let's just chill out and make the best of what we have left here type thing. So that that's an incredible, an incredible journey. So we're going to prepare for this next break here and, um, and then we'll be back because I got to, I'm going to, it's the drum roll. I, I'll do it. <laughs> so you are listening to Bill Myers inspires and we're doing a series now in the month of January on healing and hope with my, and today's guest is the author, attorney, advocate, and just all around wonderful human being, Jennifer Jones Austin. We'll be back in just one moment. Today, we are facing some of the greatest challenges of our lives, from our health to political unrest, the environment, financial uncertainty, and the nation's racial divide. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Bill Myers Inspires as he and his guests take a deep dive into the issues that impact our world with an eye to exploring solutions. Emmy Award-winning actor Bill Myers is an accomplished actor, jazz musician, filmmaker, writer, educator, and speaker. As a biracial man who's both black and white, Bill leverages his background, talent, and voice through creativity, compassion, and connection as activism for social justice to focus on uniting the divide and compelling change. Bill Myers Inspires encourages listeners to look within themselves and take decisive action to make a positive difference. For more information, visit his website, BillMyersInspires.com, and sign in for the latest news and updates. You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires here on the Inspired Choices Network. We're here every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you for joining us. And now, let's get back to the conversation. We're back. You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires, and we are here with my guest today, Jennifer Jones Austin, and um, and that just to be able to say that we're here today with Jennifer Jones Austin is in and of itself pretty awesome to be able to say. Thank she you. Is the author. You are so welcome. She is the author of a wonderful book called Consider It Pure Joy, and uh, I know that this book is available on amazon.com is probably and probably several other sources mm-hmm. and um we will get through that and, and get back to that in just a minute because i do think it's a great read and something that uh is very inspiring um and very timely um, yeah. it is very timely and so 
Okay, so Jennifer, here we go. Okay. Now, <clears throat> so we did the bone marrow drive, uh, uh, thousands and thousands from all around the world. And we, we, we were matching 100 people who have been blessed by this effort. And you did not come up with a match. And so here's where we are. How do... <laughs> What and, you know, and, 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 what, and what my husband and I kept on saying, you only need one. You only need one. And so, you know, we were in a race against time because, as I said, the doctor said that this the, uh, the consolidation chemotherapy to keep the cancer at bay uh, was going to uh, eventually become ineffective. My body would learn, you know, to adapt to the chemotherapy. And, um, you know, it just wouldn't be effective anymore. Kind of like when people say you, you can't take antibiotics, but for so long because the body then says, you know, oh, I, I've seen this. Uh, right. it's, it's rendered no, it's, it's rendered ineffective. So um, we passed, we, you know, we passed from um, 2009 into the new year. I don't have a transplant prospect. Uh, I am at times growing weary, but at the same time, I am feeling blessed because I'm seeing, you know, what is happening and all the joy. I'm going to tell you, let me just pause and tell you the joy that comes, the blessing that comes sometimes when you are going through something and, and others know about it. So often what happens when we are facing something very challenging is we, we tend to hold it. We tend to not want others to know. We keep it to ourselves. What I learned by having a disease that required that the public know because I needed the public to help me to right. try to find a donor um, was that I, I drew so much strength. I drew so much courage. I didn't feel that I was alone suffering all by myself because people were showing me love at every turn, trying to help me get through this disease. And so that's what's happening. And um, we're still not learning that there's a match for me. And then one day the doctors call me and they say, we believe we have something else. And uh, they told me what it was. And I thought, wow, really? Like modern day medicine? You know, like I had never thought that I would be like, you know, kind of one of these people who um, were caught up in something that was so relatively new. Right, um, right. But that, you know, they, they saw hope for me in, in me being part of something relatively new. I got a transplant. It was not a bone marrow transplant. It was a cord blood transplant. I received the stem cells in the cord blood of two babies. Now, the cord blood that I'm talking about is the very cord blood that often is thrown in the trash more often than not when a baby is born. So when the baby's born and they cut the umbilical cord blood, doctors most often just toss it into the trash. Mm. But they found that cord blood contains stem cells and stem cells can birth, create a new blood and bone marrow system. I received mm. the stem cells of two babies. Now, here's the, the cliffhanger or the way that it all comes together. Right. The beauty of this was that um, when I was like very young and, and, and I felt God spoke to me and said, I want you to work, to serve, save, protect. 
my both most vulnerable children. I'm so grateful. I'm so thankful that I have clarity of mind to hear him, to lean in, to listen, and to respond. And then to have the blessing for so many years of working to serve, save, protect God's children, his mm -hmm. vulnerable children. Oh, yeah. Well, years later, when I was at death's door and I needed someone to save me, we looked to my siblings who should have been a match and they weren't a match, mm -hmm. did not match me at all. We turned to the bone marrow registry with better than 8 million people in it. And not one person in that registry was a match for me. My husband, and as I said, my family conducted bone marrow uh, uh, donor drives, better than 200 drives, bringing more than 13,000 people to the registry. And not one person was a match for me. And that's because God had something just for me. I received the cord blood, as I said, of two babies, the stem cells in the cord blood of two babies. These two babies were two babies born in a public hospital here in New York City. Mm -hmm. Two African-American baby boys born in a public hospital in New York City. Most people who deliver in public hospitals don't have health insurance that takes them to a private hospital. Most often they are people who are low income. Mm -hmm who may be challenged. I received life-saving stem cells from the cord blood of two African-American baby boys born in a public hospital. Mm. When I think about that, I just, I'm always just overtaken with joy because what I realize is that I gave my life to saving, serving and protecting God's most vulnerable children. And in this nation, who are the most vulnerable? Our African-American babies, and in particular, our African-American baby boys. And when I needed someone to save me, God provided, he sent two African-American baby boys. You know, it still gives me chills. <laughs> It really does. And it's so powerful, a powerful testament to um, uh, the mysterious workings of God and uh, what happens when we when we walk the path. I mean, we don't we don't know. We, we can never know and see the end of the story. You know, Martin right. Luther King, what is it? You know, uh, just take the first step, you know. Uh, well, you know, Bill, I tell people all the time that um, you have to live in pursuit of purpose. You have to live every day believing that there's a reason you're here. I've heard many people say in this COVID moment, you know, coming into 2021, well, we survived COVID, you know, and I've even heard some people foolishly say, you know, we're, you know, we're the, um, you know, we did what we were supposed to do. And those who have perished didn't do what they were supposed to do. Oh. No, not at all. This yeah. is what I believe. We're still here, not because of our own doing per se, but we're all still here. Those of us who get to continue living on this earth in 2021, on January 8th, we're still here because we have purpose. And what our responsibility is in this moment is to, you know, we may know what that purpose is, we may not, 
but just keep working in pursuit of it, trying to do the best that you can do. Be, be the good person you need to be. Live with a sense of joy that you're still here, optimism and hope, and a belief that you have something to contribute, no matter your situation, no matter your circumstance. Right. You have purpose. Yeah, and, and oftentimes it is uh, our vulnerabilities and our, our brushes at the edge, you know, that are the very thing that give us uh, renewed purpose and yeah. are the very things. Because you said something before, uh, the whole notion of not uh, how when we are in a bad way, a lot of times we sort of clamp down and we don't mm -hmm. reach out. And I would argue that that is precisely the time to yell to the highest mountain. That is the time when you need folks to companion you and yes. to open up options and, you know, uh, two heads are better than one. 13, 14, 20,000 heads are better than one. I mean, when Absolutely. everybody's working uh, to, to lift uh, to lift one another up, I think is very, very powerful. And, and if uh, for no other reason, then, you know, when we hold stuff, we stress about it. Right, right. And it right. works against our physical and our emotional and our mental well-being. So just sharing allows you to release and to let go. Yeah, yeah. So Jennifer, we are coming up here and I just want to, as we sort of get ready to wrap this show up, um, first of all, it is a pleasure as always. You blessed me. Oh, you, you have blessed me. Again, the name of this book. Thank you. Is Consider It Pure Joy. And we know that it can be, it is available on Amazon. And I would imagine if you go to Jennifer Jones Austin, what is it.com? Yes, you can. Yep, you can order it there. Okay. And there, you know, there are a few bookstores, but you know, if you and if you send me an email, I'll give you, you know, I, I love to talk to people. All right. Go to jenniferjonesaustin.com and, and send me an email there. And you know, if you want to share your story, you need some encouragement. That is awesome. Well, I hope that that folks have have been blessed with your story today as I am hearing it once again. Uh, it is amazing. And uh, I just want to encourage you to press on, my dear, and keep, Thank you. keep keep lifting up these children. So again, you've been listening to Bill Myers Inspires with my guest, Jennifer Jones Austin. Uh, I thank you for joining us today and I uh, look forward to next week's conversation. Again, we're staying on health our healing and hope. Thank you for listening. Ta-ta. Thank you for spending your afternoon right here with us at Bill Myers Inspires. Remember, we're here every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Inspired Choices Network. Remember to take time this week to take a breath and look within yourself and figure out how you can make a positive difference in this world. Spread the word, and we'll see you here next Friday. Have a wonderful week.